Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is actress, best-selling author, and activist Selma Blair. Selma is an incredibly gifted writer, and her memoir, Mean Baby, is one of the most impactful books I've read in a long time. Today, we talk about the journey that's led to Selma's multiple sclerosis diagnosis and how she's come to embrace change at 50. Selma explains how she found healing through books and writing and how she's learned to be kinder to her younger self and the forces that have shaped her as a mother. Let's get to my chat with Selma Blair. Oh, hi. Hi. So happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. How are you? I'm really well. I'm here in LA and my health, I'm in remission, meaning I have no active lesions. I had a bone marrow transplant like three, four years ago. I can't remember because all time stopped four years ago, but I, I had a bone marrow transplant and it was really successful. I mean, great. I find I had a years long flare. So I had accrued some brain damage. I have some stuff that still happens, but you know, you just adapt. It just occurred to me reading your book. I, first of all, can I just tell you, it is so exquisitely written. So beautiful. There are a lot of memoirs that are honest and vulnerable and brave but you are such a fucking good writer. Thank you so much, Gwyneth. I mean, really, thank you so much. It's all I ever wanted to be and never dared dream to actually ever publish anything other than like, you know, a story or an essay. And it's just something I realized I didn't admit to myself that it's what I wanted to focus on. You know, you just don't know until you start to discover a point of view. And even though mine is very kind of emotionally based, I'm, as I'm learning to, to balance my life better, it you you gain perspective. So like, 
yeah, hold on people. Like you grow up sometime, you figure things out at a point and then it's a whole different level of understanding. And it's such a relief to find what, to find what I've always been doing is something I wait, I get to do. Right. Like that's the work I've been doing, being an actress that was storytelling in a way got me to this point where it's like, okay, I developed some celebrity to be able to get into the space. Like you don't realize how things are steps, you know? Did you read a lot of memoirs? Did it just sort of organically come out of you? I always read memoirs. I mean, I read so young. I mean, it saved me. My own ability to process what I was going through was very limited as a young girl. And I started drinking very young, but I was never too drunk to read and to always write. I mean, you always write, but it, it's something I'm coming to terms with as a, a grown up now that how to deal with low self-esteem without judging it, like how to not blunt your creative process, if that's what, you know, and, and it's, and when you just don't have any confidence and don't even know you don't have confidence because you're kind of functioning. Thank God I said, oh, wow, I can at least write this. That was something I could do. I realized that I have a space. I love words. I grew up reading, you know, Joan Didion and C.S. Lewis and Judy Bloom, And, you know, books were, were everything. And when I read about Holocaust books, that, you know, starting with Anne Frank as a fourth grader, it gave me such a perspective. And I have such an ability, like a lot of, you know, playful, creative people to really be in that space. And that's like, I kind of grew up with that story of Auschwitz and, you know, real, real calamity kind of embedded in my brain. And then I, now I realize, okay, good. Now, how do I, how do I use that for the best of me? But I do think it helped me survive a lot Yeah. to just think, to just have a, you know, not, not the comparison ever helps because you can get into a guilt thing, but you know, to have a comparison of people that had gone through much worse and opened their hearts and telling of it in such dramatic ways. So that kind of abject bravery resonated with you. And I felt as yeah. your reader, that literature had had an impact on you. I could almost feel you as a little girl envisioning yourself in the world and being totally subsumed in your books. I was. I picked books up from the library or from my mother's shelf. So, you know, I'm reading Haywire, like the Hayward story, you know, really grown up stuff, really young. It's so great. And it is great. Like there is something for definitely hovering, but the, for, you know, censoring, but no, never books. My mother never censored any books. Everything as critical as my mother could be, by the way, I adored her, but she was, you know, quite impossible for a, an emotional character like me. But Well, that's sort of putting it mildly and we're going to get back <laughs> to that. But she was also lovely. Like, you know, Melissa Rivers writes in a book about Joan Rivers, who had very similar personality to my mom, although my mom was a magistrate and not a pioneering comedian. But the way she puts it in her book, the same kind of character is extremely, you know, hysterical, you know, amazing, funny. I don't mean hysterical, you know, like out there. And so it's just perspective of how it hit you. I didn't have a whole foundation of family around me and in, in the most healthful way. So my mother was everything. And to write about it, it's, I'm always amazed at how many women. That's what everyone comes up to me, no matter what neighborhood I'm in. If I'm on the Upper East Side, just finishing the most luxurious lunch, or, you know, if I'm in Kentucky, you know, in, in the woods, literally, oh my God, my mom, yeah. that's it. Like loving something that doesn't exactly nurture you. 
immediately as a kid. You find out later it nurtures you if you can hang on, I think. Right. Like in the sort of soul curriculum way. Right. It's your classroom. Right. (laughs) You learn what you need to learn. Yes. I mean, you have to look at it that way because you don't always have the perspective in the moment, of course. And we have our emotional needs and physical needs and things. But it seemed like your mother didn't go to great lengths to really see you or understand you and that she wanted you to be something that she, she wanted me to be you. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. No, really. And that is an ideal. And I'm not saying that lightly. I mean, and it was my ideal too. My mother even considered naming me Gwyneth. And now, you know, once you became a star, I was like, Oh, if only my whole <laughs> life could be different if I were Gwyneth. Gwyneth, it's just so aspirational. Of course, you have your whole life, but like, you know, the effect that you had on young girls with the way you presented yourself, it was incredible and aspirational to me. And I wanted to be your friend and I I wasn't a friendly person. So seeing things were amazing. And so I can understand why my mom would wish for me to have all these things that I would also love that, you know, at the outskirts of, of seeing someone she wanted a presence. She knew how important that was in life. And I think, you know, she wanted me to be tall and thin and enjoy my blondness instead of always covering it up to be dark. This is not natural now, but as I wear a, a, you know, a a cotton top, lovely head that my mom would very much approve of. But I understood it. It's hard when you think, oh, wait, she does get me because I have these same ideals. You know, I love it. I love a performance. I love luxury, family beauty. I always wanted to be, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow as a child. It's amazing. I just didn't think that was, was possible. I mean, not that it is possible, but to be what you want to be, I mean, and I just wanted to be what she wanted me to be. So if I wasn't tall and thin and blonde and brilliant and, and funny and, you know, out there on stage in a way, then I wasn't good enough. But that's an injury. It is, I guess. I mean, we don't realize because I agreed with her. Right. And that is a double injury. Right. That's insult. And I loved her immensely, as you can see. Of course, of course. And the complexity of it all, I could feel how much you loved her and longed for her. And then at the same time, I thought, here was this very sensitive child, a very artistic child, not fitting exactly perfectly into the eyes of your mother, and then maybe not being able to fully metabolize all of those feelings and then looking to other panaceas to to help you as you went through. But I just wondered, was there a connection for you? Did you feel that that was trauma? And because you adored her so much, you couldn't, would almost have been easier if you hated her, right? Because then- Of course I could dismiss it. I could say her ideals aren't worthy. But But instead you kind of absorb them and it became very complicated, no? Yes, I think it's so complicated when you don't have your own agency over your life because you're young enough. Not not a lot of kids do in a way that grownups think of, you know, I mean, we don't know who we are yet. A lot of people I didn't ever. I always felt like an alien and I just wanted to fit into what my mother wanted because I loved her so much in that wholehearted, you know, needy way that that was my whole life's goal. I didn't have any of my own except 
writing. The one thing I was in at a Four Seasons hotel, dropping my sister off at camp. So we'd always stop at the Four Seasons in Toronto when I was little. And they had this maze that in the back by the pool. And there was a lifeguard that caught my eye and I, there's a pad of paper by the bed, but I just scribbled a few sentences, not scribbled for a five or six year old. It was like my life's work. I was Ernest Hemingway on that pad of paper, but I wrote about the lifeguard that had holes in his shoes and I wanted him to marry me or take me in the maze. And my mother read it and she said, oh my God, Selma. Oh, you have to write your book. Start now. Put it in the box. You know, and so so I did my whole life. I just write little things. And now I give myself as a writer the confidence to learn how to construct this into further books and create other stories of other people because I'm I'm done with myself. I got the attention I wanted now. Like I really did. It fit something, you know, like the actress that plays a bride all the time doesn't have much interest on her wedding day. <laughs> you know, being the bride, it's like, oh, no, what's fine. We'll have a small affairs. I got something really out of my system, understanding her and also having her having me write this book because mm-hmm. this was a very emotional kind of book almost through my eight year old self. You know, it's a very simple book, but I took much time keeping it, you know, kind of as spare as I could because it's very easy to get into a lot of Drek and self-analysis. I actually love books. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, as I said, it, it is beautifully pared down and it I don't know how you manage to, it's like about you and it's not self-referential. There's a real purity to it. Thank you. I think I've been a voyeur my whole life in a way, you know, trying to find a perspective, a point of view, anything, you know, my journals were all very self. It was either all about heartbreak over someone, you know, my first loves every journal, you know, and I read a magazine piece years ago and you said how you were the architect of your own misery at that time. Yes. And I I always am. I had been, well, as am I, (laughs) realize that once you can really accept some responsibility and look at that without judgment to shut me down. You know, why is this happen in my romantic relationships that I definitely sabotage the amazing things I had? Right. And it took years of breaking relationships down in that way, you know, that I finally got hit over the head enough that I was like, wow, I'm the, co- <laughs> I'm the common denominator. <laughs> I'm not happy with one. I have to pick everyone's, you know, love of me to feel whole. But was it that classic thing that you marry or you 
get involved intimately with with somebody that triggers those old unresolved things, right? Well, like funny, so- I didn't pick it at first. And my biggest loves or like an, an actor, a young actor that I love so much that was my real love here. And and now we're fine, we're friendly neighbors. But Jason I'm, Schwartzman. Yes, who's just the most lovable, wonderful and his family and his wife. It's but it was a full circle moment to come back and now we we can, you know, we have a hug and, and some love, but, but that was, that took a long time. It took, I mean, it took years of absence to be able to get to a place that was neutral. Why do you think you loved him so much? Oh God, he was just good and funny. And, you know, he was just a very emotionally mature young kid really young boy man and and still is and had such a lightness through his depth and the problem is he adored me and I couldn't trust someone adoring me so unconditionally I didn't understand that I felt flailing wait I gotta search for my adult and adult to me meant knowing my flaws before I did and letting me know them you know it was a codependent idea that I that I wanted and it's not what I had. I found great people my angels sent to me. Right. But I wasn't ready for it at that time. Right. Right. And I'm still not. I mean, now I've realized now I will be in the future if that ever comes to it. But that might not be part of my makeup. So was there the pattern that you kept being? I kept concerned? looking for people that were going to be mean to me in a way that right. I could tell would be critical, that I could probably try to win over their approval I wasn't aware of it at the time. Right. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of trust in myself. And that's where books have always been. An escape. A lifesaver and an escape to read about others' heartbreak and being the architects of their misery and not understanding because the things I want are, Mm. I thought were all great for my unfoldment, but they were not. I was ignoring what I was doing, what I was trying to prove, I think, subconsciously. And so do you feel that your relationship with alcohol, which you talk about so like unbelievably bravely in the book, do you think that it was more that you were dependent on alcohol as a way to soothe like the the particular difficulties of your life? Or did you feel like it was chemical? No, I never felt a chemical addict. And even when I'd had, you know... I've never had any dependency on anything chemically, very emotionally, only alcohol. It was a glass of oblivion. I just, I didn't realize then I really needed to calm my nervous system down. I didn't realize that even MS and maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't, that that really does things to your adrenals, your nervous system. You know, you think you have a whole way of thinking and it's just what's happening. It's weather, you know, and, and that is something I think more and more doctors need to understand as I was misdiagnosed for maybe 35 years and really actively trying to seek through healers. It's funny because every healer I went to in 2000s, like early and late 90s, they're, you know, they're ones you went to, like you had left the week before and they're like, you know, some Russian chiropractor was like, your friend Gwyneth was here, just assuming maybe we knew each other because we're in the same zeitgeist kind of, but we were on the same trajectory of whatever we were right. searching for to feel more vibrant or something yeah. or understand a mystery or whatever it was. But I was always using these people as aids also because I physically didn't feel well. And the alcohol 
hit both those. You know, I did start young. I started as a real drinker by the age of seven and a half, like a real drinker, like an everyday drinker, not an everyday drunk. But I did start that very anesthetizing pattern very young when there was either emotional, it was mostly emotional. I didn't start having like real body pain until like eight and nine, but it was definitely to self-medicate. I didn't see any other thing. My mom and dad drank wine. That's safe enough. And this makes me feel this way. Like it's okay. So that was the best I could do at that time, but it definitely stunted more intricate emotional balances I needed to strike to have a more, you know, successful feeling in our life or outer life. And you, you managed to get sober a bunch of times and then fall yes. back. Off. I'd have four years sober, two months sober, one year, some real deep, you know, I'd be a sponsor. I was, you know, real years, but I never felt joy. I was mm-hmm. doing it. And I knew that it was keeping me out of the bigger troubles I'd create for myself that could get me a little reckless, yeah. but I didn't have it in my heart. I didn't have um, a calm. I didn't have a calm. And I did realize with the MS diagnosis that a different kind of calm was possible. A lot of it was a brain body balance and I could stop beating myself up so much for being, you got, couldn't hold alcohol as an adult, you know, cause then I couldn't, I just wasn't healthy. I didn't have to drink a lot. I rarely drank in front of people because I knew I could be loud and obnoxious. So it was all a process this whole time of isolating self-loathing you know, cause even if you have something good going, but then you go out and you're a little too loud or a little, you know, it's like, Oh God, I drank one glass and that's what it does. I could not be a lady. And I value that despite all my ridiculousness in life and things. I'm really an open book with my messiness, but I do believe it's also appropriate <laughs> to know how to be appropriate and drinking can be a real problem to that, especially, you know, if you're used to being alone, it didn't stick until I got a diagnosis because then I developed some self-trust. And I could look at myself as my own child. Like, what would you do to take care of this person? You have a child, no time for guilt, regret, or shame, putting yourself down. Let's figure out how to get moving. And certainly when you got the diagnosis after all that time, it sounded like it was a relief for you. It was such a relief to have receipts because the MRI was the receipt. And I want to say that to all your listeners and it's so important to get an MRI. Our brains contain so much information that, that gives us so much of how we process everything and, and our guts and all of that. And people, you know, are just realizing that more and more now in the general world in here, but I never asked for an MRI. I never knew my whole life. And I searched, I mean, I'd stay in hospitals for months and rehabs where they'd look at me, you know, and I would deal with emotional, physical, I'd go on retreats and fasting. I mean, I did everything and I never asked for an MRI because I wholeheartedly believed what I was told that I was just depressive and maybe ADHD. But if I took Adderall, I, you know, just wanted cigarettes and then I'd start the whole sabotage with a low energy all day, you know, I'd sit there and chain smoke and I'm like, Oh, what am I doing? I'm doing all these healing. So that's just kind of a little bit of a mess. I didn't have any roadmap and that MRI was proof for other people that think in that only scientific way. Yeah. Like the diagnosis didn't change much because I was already sick. Although now I was at a crisis point because it had accrued in the nervous system. And, you know, I was just doing everything wrong except for I was sober by the time I was diagnosed, which I also say is important for diagnosis if you're a problem drinker, right? because you will not be able to see what's really happening with that added 
dehydrating and mental, you know, processing factor all akimbo. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, when you were very young, you started to feel these physical pains. And, you know, this is something that I actually hear a lot from women who are on a wellness journey of whatever type that they have been totally sidelined and marginalized by their doctors. They go in saying, I don't feel well, you know, something's wrong. And they're told to take an antidepressant or exactly what yeah. you just said. I started antidepressants at 12 and I don't even know how to get off them because every time it's right. you know, such desperate, you know, withdrawals in the brain stuff. Right. So, so it's a track that I've been put on that I let myself that I did. And and I'm not saying they're all wrong. I'm not saying all antidepressants are wrong at all, but I just, when you believe one story. Well, yeah, it's not a clear picture, right? Not a clear picture. And you don't know who to go to for a clear picture. They're the people you trust. And I fundamentally yeah. believe that women know when they are off. Like we know when something's wrong. And a lot of times we're told you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. It's this, you're postpartum, you're, you're, you're X, Y, Z, you know, you're depressed, you're exhausted, you're stressed, you're yeah. working too hard. Well, I've realized in my life, just like anything, you need receipts for the doctors, you know, just like anything to get anything accomplished more quickly, because everyone is kind of on their own surge. And so really, people really need to, I need to write down, you know, I kept a fever journal as a kid, you know, it turned out I kept it for four years, and that showed nothing. But I was on to something like, okay, let's bring in when I have this meal, like I throw up here, I can't do, you have to have a specific thing. And to say, you know, if so much, if, if you're just so overall wonky or tired all the time, like I was, that's like, get an MRI. Let's rule that out. It's so funny that men can go in oftentimes what I've heard from my men friends. Oh my God. I can't believe it took you your whole life to get diagnosed. I went in like with like a really crunching neck, you know, a headache and a neck pain. And immediately, like they put me on an MRI. I've done that for 35 fucking years. No one ever said I had CAT scans. Sure. Dr. Sugarman gave me a hundred. When I was little, you get a hundred. Like, what is it? But they don't find anything, but you know, Mm -hmm. they're not going to find that stuff. And I think it's amazing because there are 
Then once you see something in the brain, then we understand nervous system. Then we start to understand the other things that are mind-body connections. And then we can search more accurately for the ways to calm. So now that you, you had your diagnosis and it was a great relief. in Then one- I was screwed because the modality, every disease modifier I couldn't tolerate. Wow. So then it's like, oh my God, I have multiple sclerosis in this good time for multiple sclerosis, relapse remitting. Can you tell us a little bit about what multiple sclerosis is? Yes. Hi, I'm Salman. I have multiple sclerosis. It is when your immune system, it's an autoimmune disease, and it's when your immune system attacks, uh, you have too many antibodies, everything, it crosses the blood-brain barrier for whatever reason, hereditary, mostly it affects women, but not always, and, and of Irish descent, which I am. And it attacks the lining of your brain. It crosses the blood brain barrier and, and will attack the lining of your brain, the myelin sheath, the fatty slippery thing on your brain that conducts, you know, all the impulses. And when that gets fried, it'll start like a little fire and it can heal if it remits, but if it's going on long enough, it will go deeper and deeper and you'll have lots of frizzled wildfires, small or little, and you could have tiny lesions that are in a very essential place for our daily lives that can be highly dramatically change your life, or you could have little ones that you don't notice that, you know, you wouldn't notice in whatever you're doing in your day and, and, and all different types of gradients in between. Mine was so long that I did wind up getting, you know, a lot of damage in the deep gray matter, you know, that like it went into more basal ganglion movement and speech disorders, which mine can come and go with my emotional like blocks or, or whatever to the listeners, these things that I have, it'll be like, my body kind of bears down like a hiccup. I can't control it. Mm. And it's like a spasticity, a dystonia. And so I curl up, like I have my knees up and everything, but if I straighten out and walk, then it's like just sitting up will trigger my body until it stabilizes again. Wow. Oh my so it's really can be dramatic or it can look like, wait, I talked to her yesterday. She's totally fine. Like right now everything moves. But once I get up, the traffic jam created in my brain, trying to figure everything out because of where my damage spots are, even though I no longer have active MS, it's just residual damage. So that's what people don't understand. Like, wait, isn't she cured? Why is she like this? My sister isn't like this. And I've had to learn to have a really strong core because of all the feedback I get from people not understanding. Like, wait, you're cured. Why are you still, you have cane one day, you don't. And it is variable. If it's a sunny day, I don't go out till about six unless I real, and I wear an ice vest when I'm out because the heat will trigger the autoimmune. So I'm very, I have sun allergy now. Wow. But I'll still go to Cabo with you, Gwen. No, just kidding. I, so you get a big hat. So you go out by four. So you, you know, you stand under an umbrella. It's fine. You learn, you get in the ocean more. What has been the hardest part of this for you? Well, I thought it was the hardest in the beginning that I couldn't be on a set anymore because of consistency. Is that really true? Yeah. Cannot? I mean, if something is really worth it, which is amazing because this MS has given me a discerning quality I never had before because <laughs> <laughs> I was just so happy to like, oh, I get to work. Oh, this is the crappiest movie ever. But Meg Ryan's in it. I kind of want to hang with her on set. Cool. Like I didn't have a real trajectory. I was just pleased. You know, I rarely turn something down unless it was really obviously just, you know, a clunker experience. But 
So the MS will make me discerning. If anyone really believes in me, then that's the right partner anyhow that would give you the time to go, okay, it's okay. Or, you know, something that matching wouldn't be as essential, you know, the way they shoot, you know, that it's okay that you have the specificity and it'll just be incorporated. You know, it's just someone that has to be willing to take the time. Right. And I know how fast sets move. And so I don't even attempt until I could figure out how to do something effect effectively and an effective use of my discrepancies and right. <laughs> in brain stuff. Right. Right. But it's right. so exciting to be 50 and have to learn like a whole different way of being. It's fascinating. And it's changed my style. Like Tom Brown looks amazing on me now. Cause it's like, Oh, if my legs like spread or I fall or I go to pet the dog or, you know, like drop my cane. Oh my God, that outfit works really well. It's very like Charlie <laughs> Chaplin. You know, it's not like I'm in a, like some, you know, beaded, you know, thing that I have to really stand erect. I'm definitely like accept more quirks for lack mm. of a better word. And I, and I find them somewhat, it's, I, I get my own Christopher Walken cadence <laughs> in, in a way, not at all Christopher Walken, my own, you know, we'll figure I, it out. I, I get I'm going to work with the spasticity for sure. I, I worked with this amazing healer doctor one time, and we were talking about autoimmune diseases and how they impact women like 10 to one, I think, or eight to one that they, they do men. I just think it's fascinating because all of the women that I know who have autoimmune stuff, lupus, I mean, it goes on and on. I have mm -hmm. so many friends who have major autoimmune issues and so what this person said was that women live kind of in a milieu of attacking themselves psychologically yeah. and emotionally. Right. So of course your body would kind of follow suit and attack itself, right? That's right. Right. The power of the word, the power of what the we power of how you regard exactly. yourself. And it did strike me that, you know, you, God bless you. You've, you've been in situations where you have let yourself be attacked and yes. destroyed. Yes. It was no mistake. It was one of the first things I thought of when the MS finally really like took, took more out of me, kind of took me really down was that's when I had to pay attention and take care of myself, adopt that because I was beating myself up all the time. Like, you know, when people say you're under sedation, your body doesn't know the difference between a surgery unless you like prep it and tell it, and, you know, and being mauled by a bear, maybe, you know, your actual cells, not right. your emotional body, perhaps, you know, so it, was, it made sense. Like all of it made sense was like, this is what I did, child. You know, I put myself in so many extraordinary situations. I mean, I didn't even cover it in the book nearly my whole life almost as a really tragic comedy that you could never make a horrible joke about because it's too embarrassing and awful. And I didn't know I had that self-hatred. I just, Aww. being an addict so young, an alcoholic so young, is just so emotionally harmful. And I never knew. I thought, you know, I'm tough. No, nah, I can handle this. I can drink. I never looked at myself as, as this poor girl. And I had to say like, you're allowed, like give her a little, give her a little love. My God. Well, it's almost like you had this flywheel, right. Of a, of a mother who was incredibly judgmental and a little bit sadistic from, right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you have this very tender, sweet girl who's an open artist and 
being told she's a mean baby and all of this. And then you have this kind of existential hole, which probably is because you didn't feel that overwhelming love for your mother all the time. Yeah. And then you had this brewing autoimmune turning into MS for which, from which you felt pain from the age of seven or eight. And so then alcohol was, was used as a tool, right. To kind of mend all of those things or just kind of get you through these very difficult moments in your life. And so it's like self-fulfilling, right. And then, and then fulfilling and you can't, yeah, it was felt like shit and alcohol were all I loved and knew, you know, that was the best part of my life. The alcohol, it was the best part. It was the worst, but there's a reason why you do it. Right. You know, know, it's funny. It's like, I think even I was talking about this with my husband the other day, how, you know, we use alcohol to calm our nerves or to demarcate like a busy day from evening. And Mm -hmm. we don't, and, and only because in the last two years, because I've been paleo and like dealing with some health stuff of my own, I've really not been drinking very much at all. And the, the difference that, you know, I, I've become more observant about how we use alcohol in the culture as that crutch and as that, you know, thing to calm you down or like right. get you ready for a party. And like, we really, we really rely on it in, in so many ways that, you know, are probably not, you know, not that no, healthy. It is demarcates our transition space. It's, you know, it's 60 to zero. You get home from work. I made the drink for my highly functional parents in the outside world, right, you know, make them right. their drink. It was very much a Wes Anderson film with the, you know, the swivel jungle chairs and the shag carpet and the parents, you know, the mom wearing the mod for zone and the Paloma Picasso and dad, like Dustin Hoffman on the plaid Dunhill. And they're having the drinks and they cannot tolerate each other, but they pretend for many years and I'm fixing the drinks and drinking the drinks. And it was all very quiet and smoky and drinky and wonderful and sad. And, and romantic. You're talking about (laughs) other than, yes, it was just one big haze of going from 60 of their outside functional world to inside of not having any idea how to relax in that space. Right. And it was the only thing that could take you down other than or deal know, with their or... actual feelings, right? Like right. dealing with their actual feelings was too difficult. And yeah, so and you, I just didn't saw that template, right? You grew up with that. I template. grew up with that. And I think so many people did. Yeah. I mean, I think it's only now, unless you had really artist parents or something that I didn't really, but mm-hmm. my mom was the closest thing to a performer artist, but she was out of place and it was a judge. I mean, there was so many different things. She was so performative and fun, but it was also so critical in Mommy Dearest, which she acknowledged and liked the reference. She appreciated it, Mommy <laughs> Dearest. So she had a sense of humor too, but it was, she was, it was all my reference points. Like I didn't grow up like my other friends that the family would all hang out like on the couch by the fire in front of the kitchen. Like our house was very segmented and stiff and just the whole thing, your environment, all of it informs Mm-hmm. so much even if you're someone that doesn't have any money it can still be simple beautiful airy it's all a, it was all like a mirror of what my parents were going through and it was very cinematic and dark but not useful for a flourishing personal you know health absolutely so it, it it served me for many years for a, a love of style like I picked apart the things that I appreciated of right. my growing up you know turned mm-hmm. the cons into like a, mm. a kind of catalog that I could tolerate Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Not to jump around, but I have to ask you about this story of, so you're, you're in New York, you're getting some traction acting. I think you're in New York, maybe you're in Los Angeles at this point and you're starting to get jobs. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there are these mysterious letters. That oh, it's st- the worst, Gwyneth. It's the worst. I, it I was just, the worst. I cannot get this out of my head and heart. I just. It, it's still, someone asked me this morning. Oh, my therapist asked me if it still like resonates in me, if that time still like triggers me at all. And no, we have to give some, we have to give some, I'll give you some reference point is that it's in the book, but I, my father was not a huge factor in my life. He did. He paid for everything. I had a lovely private school. I had everything I needed, a very kind of, you know, a a privileged Midwest upbringing on on the outside. He provided everything for safety, but my mother was really my love. And so she's what I focused on and she did not approve of of her husband very much. And so neither did I. Mm. And at one point, but I was still after college and I really grew up a bit and realized what he had done for me financially and things. So I still, you know, tried to maintain a friendship and in a way, and I would tell him my successes or failures or hopes. I was not yet an actress. I was working at the coffee shop in New York on Union Square. I was having acting classes and doing all that and working at the Gap, but I I was so excited. I loved it. I was such a Gwyneth fan, such a Drew Barrymore fan, such a Alyssa Milano from Who's the Boss. Like there were certain girls that you pick is like, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And so I was like, maybe one day, like I could be a commercial actress and, and make a living that way. And I'll, and I'll see them like, you know, fun, easy, innocent stuff. And I would tell my dad. And then as I started to get some traction and really committing to this, letters started to go. I booked a job. I remember it was a film with Adrian Grenier and like Brandon Maxwell, who's in Welcome to the Dollhouse. And it was like a big thing. And it's like, oh my God, and it was for like drugged out woman. I had never done drugs, but I, I drank enough. It was in my wheelhouse and I booked the part. I was thrilled. I only told my dad and maybe my boyfriend and sure enough letters. I found out the, the producers fired me from the movie because they were worried that I had all this baggage. I was like, what are you talking about? And all these letters were going to the production office from a bogus return address. FedEx letters, like 11 a day for a couple of weeks saying that, that I needed to be fired, that I was dangerous. I was a heroin addict. I was a liability. There's an incident that matched enough in the book that it was like, oh no, a bad incident at a, at a rehab. But none of those qualities were, were anything. I was absolutely capable and reliable at that point as much as anyone is going in. And um, I was terrified. 
that was all I had. I didn't have anything. I was a young girl and all you have is your name. And, and they were sabotaging it. And I had no idea it was my father. I mean, it went on for years. But was it your father? Was it your stepmother? She wasn't my stepmother. I never even knew her. It was a woman that he was with. He never married her, but was, but it was her or it was him. It was both of them. I'll never really know the truth that came through him, but it was her doing it, but he knew, but he believed, you know, apparently this woman, this is not in the book, but it, this was set the thing of what triggered it. Um, this woman thought that I, I had put a Mickey in her drink, a Starbucks. I didn't even know she existed. I, my father never told me about her. I was in New York. I never met her. I mean, this was just a case of a really unhinged, vengeful person, I guess that was angry at me as something she perceived I had done when I I never met her. And she started this campaign against me to my father, as it turns out. And it was the most terrifying experience. I, I was terrified and I only found out about it truly the extent of what was happening because a detective got in touch with me years later. It went on for two years saying he knows it's not me, but he was hired by UTA, which was Drew Barrymore's agency at the time. And letters signed by Selma Blair were going to her. I don't know how many. I don't know exactly what they said. I saw a copy of one of them after the fact. And they were going to her with death threats. And I was, again, not an actress that anyone knew. I did. I idolized Drew Barrymore. Like as any Midwest girl that, you know, I couldn't even watch anything Drew Barrymore for so many years because it triggered like, oh my God, does she think I did this? I never became friends with her. It really kept me from making friends in this business, even though it was cleared up, maybe not with her, but cleared up by the time I became an actress. I I knew, I was alerted what happened. We we figured it out and, and I then broke off all ties with my father. How did you find out that it was your father? Because the woman sending the letters, there were cameras at the FedEx, so you can track the tracking number on the FedEx that they had a bogus, you know, return address. It was like they kept saying some agency in Chicago that used to represent me and I was, you know, nuts and unstable and all that stuff. And then I had a ring of truth enough to it in my dramatic, like, youth and kind of, like, really dramatic ways that I was like, oh, God, people would think I'm unstable. Like, I am a little unstable. I'm a drinker, but I'm sober now. Like, then even, you know, I was sober at this point. I actually wound up drinking again because I was so isolated. Like, after two years of it, I was like, forget it. But it was the most horrifying thing and so shameful to me. And that Drew would ever think I was dangerous. I never really knew. And... You know, so it was, it was unthinkable to me. It haunted me for so long and the relief of just having it a, a smidgen of it. And I, oh, so the FedEx number, you could see on camera who brings in the thing. And no, then did they, did the police go to them? No, I, to- I knew I wasn't going to get into any drama with them. I didn't have, I, I wasn't going to have to deal with a lawyer. My dad had deep pockets and there was no way he already had drunk some Kool-Aid. We were already estranged almost. I mean, we were already estranged. I had already broken it off by the time I found out it was her. And I wasn't sure it was her. I knew it was a woman, but I'd never seen my dad's girlfriend. But the way the detective described her and showed me a screenshot, cell phones were just starting then. So I knew. And then so how I did they stop? It. Why did well, they I stop? cut off all communication with him? So then no one knew what auditions, what I booked, 
you know, I was nobody, you know, I was not anyone anyone would pay attention to. There was no Google then to know what someone's doing. It would only come from my mouth to this. And then by the time, here. by the time you're famous, I'm sure everybody gets wacko letters to see. Yeah. So there was no away. credibility to anything. There was no connection right. that would get in. So, but I lived a very private life. And for someone that's so kind of Labrador retriever as I am, like I crave a connection with people, not long, t- like you don't have to be in my life all the time. Right. It can be someone I see once a year, but like, I'm going to sit on your lap, love on you, hug you. Like, I love that. That's just my mm-hmm. kind of Drew Barrymore-ish side. And this is mm-hmm. what even, but I had made up a lie from the detective to say, okay, you trap some people, find out if it's your boyfriend, your father, whatever. Cause I didn't know what, who this woman was. I'd never right. seen her face, but I, I figured it was you know, someone back where I grew up in Michigan, because it was a Detroit address and it was my father's office building. But I thought, oh, it wouldn't be him. There's tons of people from my hometown that might hate me. You know, who knows? I was homecoming queen. Okay. So anyhow, (laughs) (laughs) so um, yeah, writing it, it wasn't meant to be cathartic, but I touched on it and I didn't even want to say it. It was like too shameful to even write in the book. But why are you taking that as your shame? Like this is something that was done to you. And it's believes it. Like you still don't know the people still like to embody that is your shame. Right. It's a huge load to carry and it is an ugly murky load. And there's no winning from that shame because it really isn't your shame. But for me, it was, well, they represent me. You know, like any movie I went on where there was like a star, I always was worried. Oh my God, are they going to get something? Like, is this person going to just start doing it? Cause they'll know. And it kept me from doing movies. Like I didn't want to infect anyone. It's amazing how much a, an abuse can unhinge a young mind before you have your own life established. Cause you just feel totally attacked. So my mind was doing it too. Like the MS was attacking. I mean, there's everything that I wasn't, understanding my inability to slow down and be calm. I couldn't see it because when I'd get so worked up, I'd, I'd drink, whether it was physical and the physical and emotional went hand in hand. So I thought it was hysterical because when your nervous system's amped up and you know, that's a very MS thing, it's all the nervous system. Then it's hard to tell yourself, you go to the doctor and you're like, I am tired. I can't stop crying. You know, I never knew it could be pseudo bulbar affect, which is a real thing. And I take medicine for it now, but I can't afford the medicine, which is another problem, you know, in the world, but in our states of, of medicine, it's problematic. Do you ever feel like, wow, I really was given quite a lot in this lifetime. Yes, I do, do now. I do okay. now. And because I have perspective and I'm so much on the other side of it. I mean, there's still parts you always have to watch. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, a totally born again, different person, but I am, I've expanded other areas of my life other than fear, <laughs> you know, that is, which is huge. I've been through a lot. I've been, I just want to validate that. Like, Thank you. Thank you. It you means so much because so much. once I realized, oh my God, I am a world-class witness. And part of that witness is witnessing me and you know, how I interact, you know, like standing apart now that it doesn't like agitate and hurt grief so much. Cause I'm not in imminent danger. But even now you still realize I'm still learning the patterns that were set from always being afraid or thinking I wasn't worthy of male genuine caring. Will you tell me a little bit about like how you care for yourself now and what that, what that looks like? (sighs) Yes. I mean, I take care of some of the basic health stuff through IVIG and things to keep my 
my proteins up in my blood and immune systems because I did long-term chemo. So they're low dose, low dose after long, after ablative, I did low dose. So there were things that require kind of long-term rebalancing that I don't pay the best attention to. Like a lot of people are concerned, like, you know, oh, I can't do that because I'm worried about, I have to bring in the money. You know, you get a lot of like chaotic stuff of why you won't drink, you know, two huge things, water a day, but now I do. And it makes such a difference, <laughs> you know, to really hydrate, whatever that is. But no, the thing I do now is I don't, I don't blame myself. Like I spent so much time blaming myself. So that's an easy one in the head that doesn't cost anything. That's beautiful. I do realize the importance of only surrounding myself with as many beautiful things as I can. And I don't mean a a showpiece. I mean, really looking at my space. I realize it means something to me and really shifts the needle. And those are simple things, but, you know, I do take, you know, intensely amazing baths and cold plunges to wake me up. I cannot stress for me (laughs) that I need every day to ignite that match. You know, I need to ignite the match to just get my heartbeat going. You know, the MS creates a huge lassitude in me. And, and cold plunges, they say, are, are really good for lowering inflammation, right? In the body, a cold, a plunge. cold plunge. Yes. And so all winter, just for me, it's so easy. I could just, you know, sit in my unheated pool, you know, that sits in the shade. And now I just make an ice bath. And my son, like we have a dream of going to study like the Wim Hof method in Poland together and doing the cold plunge. And other than that, he's totally on call of duty all the time. But like, that is the one passion we share is for like breathing and cold plunges. That's so sweet. So much. And it helps me slow down because part of my movement issues so much are I rush through my transitions. Mm -hmm. So is your dialogue to yourself now kinder? Yes. And how have you made that shift? Because I think that's something that a lot of women struggle with is hypercritical. We reignite our own shame all the time by what we tell ourselves. I have to assume, and this is just a personal thing. I have to assume almost any language that immediately comes into my mouth and brain and self-talk. I just assume it is not the best choice immediately. <laughs> you know, like I, that doesn't mean I'm always going to be wrong. That, that just means sit with this for a second and explore some other possible reactions mm-hmm. just to soothe my own brain. And it's amazing if you sit for three minutes with yourself, mm-hmm. how you can find alternatives that can make the whole day a lot easier. It's unbelievable. And I see the mistakes my son is making that he'll learn trial and error or as my you know, error and trial is my version, but I'm in a very grateful grace place that I do have the time as we all kind of do, unless we're hustling 20 active jobs, like a lot of people. But if we are lucky enough to be able to have some time, I love nothing more than like sitting with the chaos in my head and not judging it, which is something I never could do before. And it's why I hated meditation. I couldn't stop the intrusive loop. So right. it's just sitting with myself as hell you know? (laughs) And I just wouldn't clear it. I just would be so stubborn. Like I wouldn't let go of that worry part. Do you meditate now? Yeah, I do transcendental meditation because it's like, yay. I got into it right when I was diagnosed. Oh no, actually right when I got sober and I knew it had to be a forever sober from alcohol. I knew. And And how long ago was that? That was God. I I actually look at the days sometimes on my phone with like an app, but it was June twenty first of two thousand and sixteen, maybe. Oh wow! Congratulations. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, it was like, oh, dance card full. I finally get it. Right. I have a kid. 
like the worst just happened. You embarrassed yourself and you potentially could have really injured and disturbed people. Like nothing is scarier than that as a mother, ask anyone. Like nothing is worse than being thought of as possibly an incapable, unsafe mother. That'll change you real quick. I wasn't driving or anything. It's just, you know, I got drunk in front of my kid unwittingly and it was ugly and changed my life. And I'd been sober up until then. You know, I, I broke. And that reality when people used to say, oh, no, your disease is doing push-ups, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I don't care as long as I don't drink. I'm fine. But inevitably, if you're so rigid and tough on yourself, you're going to wind up doing the damn thing. And I was not prepared when I did the damn thing. And just, you know, it was a leaving Las Vegas moment. It was just horrible. And I didn't know the MS. I didn't know all these things have been building for so, so long. And so that's why the book was important to just make a little space for it. And also with the MS I have, I am very distracted and scattered and menopause that people don't talk about the forced menopause from the chemo. It was a, it was a huge shift. I, my outlook, I felt much brighter, but it was just a lot to deal with that hormonal issue and and finding anything. So mm-hmm. I look for all the support. I mean, I do, I look to other healing mode, whatever feels good. Good. Whatever feels good. That's not going to be harmful. You know, I have to ask myself if the pros and cons of anything I would do, that's a vice, you know, and I can look at that clearly now. I treated myself like my child to make oh. that shift of not, of not, um, as I was going through more and still do go through things that are unexpected that hit you on a Tuesday afternoon, Literally, sometimes you just are, um, this was from a healer that I went to, but I think a lot of people do it. I had to make a shrine to myself, very small, you know, in a corner of me with little kid pictures, nothing present just at the age when I started drinking, when I chose to check out and the, the love I felt as just a mother now was so different looking back at me right without blame. You know, what would I do if I were my child? And that's what I have to ask myself when I go to a self blame or victimization or something that will not help me in any way. I I can feel it. They're not dirty thoughts, but you just have to realize, you know, what would I want to teach my child? And it's unbelievable how wise I am inside that I wouldn't give credit for until you take responsibility as a mother and to mother yourself. So beautiful. What did your mother teach you in meaning when you regard yourself as a mother now, what are the things that you learned from her to what to do and what not to do? How has she shaped who you are as a mother? I do appreciate her, her style always did. I was glad that was like the bright spot in a dingy life. She was the movie star of my life. And I love that narrative still in my head. It doesn't hurt me. It's like, that's a whole movie in my head. That's, that's really beautiful about my, my mom. And I did learn, she always said, we, she always would buy me tremendously expensive things once I stopped growing. <laughs> and she was not a spender. She was very, very, very careful with her money, but she always believed, you know, no, buy things that will be classic that you do hope to take care of and keep. You will feel better for it. And whenever she'd see a child that was well-dressed, she'd say, oh, her mother loves her very much. Oh, you can tell they have no money, but look how that child is dressed. That child is loved. So I do, I mean, that is, that is one, one tiny part of love, but representation matters in all forms of yourself. (laughs) You know, if it's easy for you, if you like it, you know, not everyone has to, but if that is something you enjoy, then by all means, I love 
I love the visual of what she's taught me. I love that she taught me never to be without a book. Do you do that with your son too? When you get him out of Call of Duty out of his hands? Oh my God, Gwyneth, my son says he H-A-T-S is reading. <laughs> I can't believe I admitted that. He doesn't care. He'd be proud. He's like, yeah, I hate reading. I, I mean, I can't believe it. He'll come around. How old is he? He's going to be 11 at the end of this month. Oh, I mean, we've done the diary of a wimpy kid, but you know, okay. th- like all that type, he'll read that type, but no, he is not. He said, mom, don't try and make me into a reader. I'm like, oh God, God forbid. God forbid. I don't know how that became like a bad, he's very much not my child. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we're so different. That's, but it's beautiful. Like they come to teach us. It's so much fun. That is so much fun. Like, and I was so happy just understanding the love between the two of you. And like that, I I love him. I mean, he gets me out and he has a sense of humor. Totally. He is someone I cannot believe, but I have asked my son, are you happy? And he's like, of course. (laughs) Yay. And I'm like, I would never have thought to ever say happy as a child. One, no one ever asked me if I was happy. And it's such a vague question. It's really in the moment. But is your overall feeling one of worry or safety or comfort (laughs) fun? And he's like, yeah, life is great. I'm like, whoa, who are you? Well, that's a testament to you as a mother. I know that he doesn't like cry when I leave and he's happy going to dad's and his relationship is amazing with his dad. It's like, oh my God, I didn't fuck up that bad. Like I didn't let those things get to me. We've managed, we're getting through it. Good. Well, happily. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending this time. You. I love you. I'm still in love with Gwyneth Paltrow, and <laughs> like it's and 1998. Like it's 1998. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Selma Blair. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of her memoir, Mean Baby. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.